Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Demetra George about the sun in astrology and what it means and some of the techniques that are associated with it. So today is uh, Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, starting at 12.49 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 302nd episode of the show. Uh, so hey, Demetra, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. It's terrific to connect with you and all of your listeners. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to have you back on the show and excited to have this discussion because um, in volume one of your book, Ancient Astrology, you had a pretty huge section dealing with the sun and dealing with so different solar phenomenon related to the sun. So that's something we'll get into today. And then I just recently got in the mail the, the proof copy of volume two of your book, which is going to be coming out pretty soon in the next, uh, it's going to be available for pre order in the next month and then probably in print the following month, right? Right. We've been expecting it like any month for about two years now, but um, my publisher is ready to make the pre-publication order announcement um, within the next couple of weeks. So that means it's really, really close and it's been, um, it'll be fantastic to have that completed. It's been yeah. for me really officially a 20 year project. And if I add, Going back to graduate school and learning Greek, it uh, extends even more years than that. So, yeah, to like 25 years? 25 years. So um, I feel grateful that I've had the opportunity to take that tradition um, to the best of my understanding, which is by no means complete, but put it in a form so that it can be, um, uh, there'll be a record of it for future generations. Definitely. Um, well, I have the book in hand, and I'm pretty excited. It's pretty thick and competes with mine in terms of like thickness. And well, it's even more comprehensive than mine because mine's just a single book, and you wrote two volumes. Um, so I'm really excited because it goes into the houses in detail, um, and just as much detail as you spent going into the planets and solar phenomenon in the first book. Um, so people can find out more information about that if they go to your publisher's website, which is rubedo.press. And if they sign up for the mailing list, then they'll get a message uh, as soon as it's available for pre-order sometime around May 13th. I think you guys are shooting for when Jupiter goes into Pisces, right? right? That, that's what Aaron Sheik wanted to celebrate the Jupiter ingress for the announcement. Perfect. Okay. Well, people should check that out. So in the meantime, uh, we're going to jump into our topic today, which is the astrology of the sun. So Last month, I started a series where we're going through each of the planets and going into a detailed deep dive on the meanings of each of the planets and reading through some ancient authors as well as some modern astrologers who talk about what the sun means in astrology and trying to get a sense of what the core underlying meaning is throughout the astrological tradition. Um, so this approach where we're going to read some about, I think, six ex excerpts from different ancient and modern authors. This is also something that you do in your books, especially this new book, Volume Two, where you focus on talking about different how different astrologers talk about the houses. Um, what do you gain from that approach, or why is that part of your approach at this point? Well, in contemporary astrology, especially until recently, our understanding of the houses were as a hodgepodge of different meanings and significations and that we did not necessarily um, learn any cohesive underlying principles to them. 
and in investigating uh, with the translations, having access to be able to investigate earlier meanings, we've seen that some meanings that once existed have dropped out of the tradition and other meanings that weren't there at the beginning have entered into the tradition. And so by doing that historical survey, we have a sense of what meanings have remained constant um, in our understanding of the houses and which meanings have come in or dropped out, often depending on the context of the culture that was holding astrology during a certain period of time. Now, where this becomes especially important is in some of the um, research that on uh, statistical research that's happening on astrology um, in terms of the field called evidence-based astrology. And they're researching certain house meanings that they've been given in the modern context. But there isn't this awareness that some of those meanings are very recent to the tradition and didn't have the continuity throughout the, the entirety of it. So they may discard some meaning, modern meaning, or some ancient meaning as being irrelevant without having that larger scope of, oh, it's been only like in the last hundred years that astrologers have attached that. So it certainly in that particular field, it can help. And then in other fields, let's say our knowledge that the third house represented was named the goddess and had to do with sacred rites and rituals. Um, for many of the um, contemporary women now who are connected with feminism, with women's spirituality, with uh, goddess worship, with goddess archetypes, with women's groups, and they have an emphasis in their third house or a strong third house ruler without knowing that that was one of the meanings, they might still be struggling to figure out like, well, what sibling or what piece of writing are they supposed to be doing with their third house energy? Whereas when they see that it was long connected with feminist activism, all of a sudden many parts of their lives completely make sense and fall into place. So those are some of the values of having that um, historical sweep. Okay, awesome. Uh, that makes a lot of sense and I think helps to contextualize a lot of the approach that you take in your latest books and then also a bit of the approach that we'll take today. So why don't we jump into it with our first author, who's basically one of the most ancient authors we have that gives a list of just the significations of the planets, which is Vedius Valens from book one, chapter one of his anthology. So here is a little glimpse of the Greek text where uh, Valens gives the sun first, and then he gives the moon significations, then Saturn, and so on and so forth. Um, and here's a translation from my book. Um, so this is from the second century, and Valens says, uh, the all-seeing sun, consisting of fiery and intelligent light, the instrument of perception of the soul in a nativity signifies kingship, authority, mind, intelligence, form, motion, height of fortune, dealings with the gods, judgment, 
being ex- being engaged in public affairs, action, leadership of crowds, father, master, friendship, notable figures, being honored by portraits, statues, and crowns of office, high priests of the fatherland. Uh, then there's a lacuna. It says blank uh, places. And then it switches to talking about parts of the body. And he says, of parts of the body, the sun rules the head. Of the sense organs, the right eye. Of the torso, it rules the heart, the life breath or sensory movement, and the nerves. Of substances, it rules gold. Of crops, it rules wheat and barley. He is of the diurnal sect, the color lemon yellow and bitter in taste. So those are Valens' basic significations, and this goes back pretty early and is pretty representative of what the early Greco-Roman astrologers thought of the planets when they talked about them. Um, so what is a good starting point? I mean, the the very first thing is just um, right, the, the all-seeing sun. <laughs> yeah, the all-seeing sun and and light, fiery and intelligent light, and that's like the core underlying thing for the sun is the underlying concept of it admitting light and being the the primary source of light in our in our world or in our solar system. Yes, I'd actually like to start with some of the um, images um, of the sun um, as a as a deity um, from the cultures that all had an early practice of astrology, and okay. in the Western tradition in Mesopotamia, uh, the sun, the planets were well. Their cosmology was that the divine permeated all of nature and the planets were one of the manifestations of the divine and they connected each of the planets with one of their deities and the sun was Shamesh and he was uh, often depicted as rising over the mountain in the east at sunrise with all these flames um, emanating from his head. And then we see... um, Similar image in India um, with their god of the sun, Surya, who's driving this fiery chariot with the rays emanating from his head. This is also Helios in Greek um, that was later conflated with Apollo. And Apollo is shown driving the steeds with a halo of light. And that halo of light then became attached to uh, Jesus um, with the same image. And so in all of the depictions of the sun, we have those rays of light um, bringing, um, to the extent the sun was connected with uh, the light and warmth which generated life, the sun was the all-giving principle of life. And furthermore, in these different cultures, um, the sun god was was linked with uh, the all-seeing sun who saw everything with justice, with keeping oaths, and with divination. And we see the um, joy of the sun being placed in the ninth house of the chart, which was called uh, Theos, or God. And so the idea is that the sun sees all, and because of that, wide-ranging perception, um, the possibility of 
knowing what the future may hold is focalized in that particular body, and hence the ninth house where the sun rejoices, one of its primary significations was all forms of divination, including astrology. And the ancient texts list um, those of dream interpretation and augury and horoscopy and prophets and oracles and astrologers. And if the sun was located in the ninth house, especially with the planet Mercury, um, then that was the indication of a great prophet through the capacity of all seeing. Mm. Um, here's a diagram for those watching the video version that just shows the planetary joys and the sun having its joy in the ninth house opposite to the moon having her joy in the third house in the place of goddess, which is opposite to the place of, of God, which is the name for the ninth house. Um, so one of the things you mentioned that was really interesting just now is um, that also becomes associated with the sun is not just ideas of, of illumination, but also ideas of sight and the idea that in order to see something, it kind of needs to be illuminated. Mm -hmm. And in the term, that word illumination, we still have that idea of um, you know something being illuminated in your mind's eye as a result of being becoming enlightened or what have you. And notions of light and seeing being very much like interconnected sometimes in our our language. Yes, you know, oftentimes a colloquial expression is when we're trying to figure out something or make sense of something, and then we might say, "Oh, and all of a sudden this light bulb went off in my mind, and I was able to finally get it or understand it." And so. There is this connection with bringing something to light of uncovering the ways in which it's been concealed so it can be made visible and then through that made manifest. Right. Um, that makes sense. And so the sun uh, is commonly um, pitted against Saturn, like most commonly in the astrological construct in traditional astrology, where the sun. Uh, as well as the moon to some extent, which reflects the light of the sun, are the two luminaries that are pitted against Saturn, which is the furthest and slowest and darkest of the seven traditional visible planetary bodies. And so they're placed in opposition to each other in the domicile scheme, where the planets are said to rule one or two signs each, and the sign of the sun is said to be Leo, and that's opposite to the sign of Saturn, which is said to be Aquarius. Right. So, um, one way of interpreting the domicile detriment and exaltation fall that was alluded to by the ancient astrologers has to do with the increase and decrease of light. And in one of my, um, understandings of the Thema Mundi, um, where the two lights in the sky, the sun and moon, were assigned to respectively the signs of Leo for the sun and Cancer for the moon. That it was said that at least in the northern in the northern hemisphere, that these were the months in which the light force was the strongest. And of course, the sun and Leo was connected with the heliacal rising of the star Sirius that happened during, um, generally during the 
month of Leo. And so, and by contrast, the months in which in the Northern Hemisphere, there's the least amount of light are Capricorn and Aquarius, and that these are given to the planet Saturn, which is not only the furthest planet in the solar system away from the sun, but corresponds to the shortest number of daylight hours in our seasonal year. And then we have a similar situation with the moon's, with the sun's exaltation in Aries and its fall in Libra is Aries marks the spring equinox when the number of daylight hours begins to increase. So it's in Aries where the sun's light starts to grow stronger. And by contrast, in Libra, which is the um, fall or autumnal equinox, we now have, after that point, the number of daylight hours starting to get stronger, uh, starting to get weaker, if there being less daylight hours. And so the uh, domicile and exaltation of the sun are connected with the increase of light coming up to its maximum strength in midsummer, and the detriment and fall are connected with the beginning of the decrease of light until the winter time when we're sort of in that frozen darkness. Yeah, and one of the things that came up um, last summer when um, the Abu Mashar translation came out and there was that new Hermes text that was discovered that was embedded in Abu Mashar that seems to come from an earlier Greek tradition. Is it actually, that was really interesting to me, is it actually specifically said that the sun um, has its domicile in Leo because, and that it's right in the middle of Leo at 15 degrees because that's the very middle of the summer when the heat and light is sort of at its most intense and most stable. And so the sun then becomes the center focal point for all of the rest of the planets then receiving their domiciles um, because then Mercury gets its next domicile in Virgo because it never gets more than one sign away from the sun before it turns retrograde, so it's assigned to Virgo. And then Venus gets her domicile in Libra because it never gets more than two signs away from the sun, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. And each of the other planets assigned based on their speed and distance from the sun after that point. So that really means that the sun is the anchor point for pretty much everything, both in terms of the domicile rulership scheme of you know why different planets rule different signs of the zodiac in Western astrology, as well as even the exaltation scheme, which really also seems to have its start and basis in the notion that the sun um, and the days start becoming longer when the sun reaches the spring equinox. And so there's this notion of the concept of light being on the increase, which is what the sun signifies as light. Exactly. And yeah. then you also have the principle of centrality. Yes. So not only in the Thema Mundi chart does does the sun have that um, central starting point from which each of the other planets and their domiciles are generated, um, but we might say now from with the discovery of the heliocentric system. Um, that the sun is the center of our solar system and all of the other planets revolve around the sun. But even from the ancient cosmology, 
when they were still using the geocentric system where they believed that the earth, not the sun, was the center, um, the order of the planets, um, starting with the earth in the center, and then the moon, Mercury, Venus, and then you had the sun as the next nested sphere, and then following that was Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And so even within the geocentric system, the sun had that position of the centrality um, of the order of the planets. So these are three different ways using completely different conceptual structures that we see that central organizing principle that the sun holds. Yeah, and this this notion of of the it ends up being an archetypal notion associated with the sun of that which is central or that which holds a central role in whatever system it is a part of. And then if you take that as an archetype and start applying it to other things, that's why you get significations like the sun signifies the king. If we're talking about like a, a monarchy or mo- monarchical um, system, that the sun would be represented by the king. Um, let me see if there's other ones like that 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 thinking then gets extended to, um, for example, in Valens or other ideas of centrality besides just kingship. Right. I mean, well, it also. S- Go ahead. Yeah, we you know we have leadership. Yeah, the leader. Yeah. So the one who leaders leads the crowd, the father, which in that system is like the head of the family in some sense in second century Roman society, um, the master, the person that's in charge, notable figures or like celebrities. Um, yeah, one, well, and then it starts going into another one of of figures that are not just cent- central but are honored or given a place of honor or. Um, praise or reputation or what have you. Right, or we can even say illuminated because the spotlight of the sight of our vision shines on them. So when a notable person walks out onto the stage, the person running the lights at the back of the room aims the spotlight on them so that they become illuminated out of the crowd as being of importance and centrality to what is going on, of again holding that position of um, notability or centrality. Yeah, I like that. The person who takes center stage yes. and who, who the spotlight is shown on. Yes. Be- yeah, that um, you said it beautifully. And that might be a good time then to mention, which we already mentioned in passing, but just that is the one sign that becomes associated with the sun primarily, which is the sign of its domicile, which is Leo. So Leo becomes the primary zodiacal sign associated with the sun and some of the sun's significations. I can already hear some of them that we're using that we end up using also as significations for Leo. So the domicile of the sun is Leo. Um, its detriment, or what I've been calling the sign of its antithesis, is Aquarius, which is the sign opposite to that. Um, its exaltation, as we said earlier, is Aries, and its fall or the sign of its depression is Libra. Yeah, and if we were to interpret those um, from a more modern or psychological perspective, um, Leo uh, has to do with um, being special, 
being um, standing out from the crowd, being royal or regal in some way, and receiving honors on account of that specialness. In our contemporary understanding of Aquarius, um, and one of the reasons why the sun is can be explained as having its detriment in Aquarius from a modern perspective, is Aquarius has been linked with the sign of the group and that in Aquarius you're told like, well, you're nothing special. You're just like equal to everyone else where we have that whole egalitarian um, brotherhood and sisterhood made up of a group of people who all share equal power and the um, uh, rule by consensus where everyone has an equal voice as being opposed to the specialness and the centrality, the authority that's connected with Leo. And so if your son, which wants to shine and be special and stand out, falls in Aquarius, the filter through which the sun tries to shine is a filter of, hey, you're just like one of the crowd. Mm. So that can be understood as the challenges that face the Aquarian sun working from some of these principles that we've been talking about. Um, in a similar way, the sun being exalted in Aries and from again, from a modern perspective, we associate Aries with being independent, um, autonomous, um, doing what you want to do. Um, sometimes Aries is criticized for not taking others into consideration. Um, but the sun, when it's in Aries, has the ability not only to shine and be illuminated in that fiery sign, but also to have autonomy in terms of its actions and decisions. However, again, from the modern psychological point of view, when the sun is in Libra, the sign of its fall or depression, which is sometimes um, interpreted, which doesn't mean melancholy depression, but means like a hole in the ground where it's brought down low instead of exalted, raised high. Um, that Libra, we understand from the modern perspective, is being about partnership and sharing and taking others into consideration. And the sun may feel challenged in Libra if every action it tries to take, it has to clear with someone else um, first who may have a totally different idea and struggle to find a compromise that it's almost antithetical to the nature of the sun seeing what it wants to do and having the ability to just do it spontaneously in the moment. Now, this is not to, I'm not suggesting that it's bad to take others into consideration or to participate with Libra or to participate in a larger group consciousness if that's how we see Aquarius for all of our modern astrologers, that that's actually, those are both important things as we move forward. But 
we can also see why the sun may find that position to be challenging or frustrating. Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about um, a lot lately, especially since last year, and finding that Hermes text was the um, how the the nature of the sun and the sign that it has its domicile and exaltation in are both hot, fiery signs, and they're both opposed by what in the Stoic and in Valens' system would be cold air signs. Right. Yes. So the, it's like the sun has this. It's sort of. Um, Again, goes back to one of its other significations, which is sort of like leading from the heart in some sense, and this fiery sort of passion that's very involved in its decision-making process, um, both in Leo as well as in Aries. But the issue um, with its opposite signs is they tend to be a little bit more cold and a little bit more dispassionate and a little bit more intellectual as air signs, both in Aquarius as well as in Libra. Right, that they're more socially oriented rather than individually oriented. Right. Um, right, yeah. they have to do about relationships with others, whereas Aries and Leo speak very much to the primary relationship. I don't want to say with oneself, but having that autonomy. Yeah, and just the balance between autonomy, self-autonomy versus you know, working with others. Um, all right, so that's getting us to some pretty core meanings then, I feel like, of the sun, and it's helping us to understand some of the things Valens talks about. One of the distinctions we should mention early on, since we talked about the concept of light, is um, the concept of sect. And one of the things that the sun does, and one of the primary techniques in ancient astrology that it does, is it is the primary celestial body that divides day and night. And when the sun rises up over the eastern horizon, you know, each morning it is it becomes daytime. Uh, eventually, it culminates overhead in the middle of the day, and then in the evening it sets at the descendant, and it becomes nighttime as long as it's in the bottom half of the chart under the ascendant descendant axis. So in that way, it kind of acts as like a celestial monarch in that it. Um, Tells us, or it sets the stage for all the rest of the planets of whether it's day or whether it's night. Right, exactly, and that the sun is the prime determiner of whether you have a day or night chart. That if it's right. above the horizon, you have a day chart. If it's below the horizon, you have a night chart. And what that you know means if it's below the horizon when you were born, and you look outside the window, it's night. In a very sort of literal way, mm-hmm. if you have a day chart and you look outside the window, it's day. Now, it is said that both the sun and moon were considered to be equal in their potency of being the sources of life, and they were conceptualized as the god and goddess, the divine masculine, the divine feminine, the king queen, the father mother. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when determining the sect of the chart and then everything that then follows from that, the sun is the factor that makes that determination. Right. So the sun is kind of in charge of making the determination of whether it's day or night. But once that determination is made, um, the sun is sort of 
the head of one team of planets or one sect of planets, which is the daytime or the diurnal team, which consists of the Sun, Jupiter, and Saturn. And then there's a nighttime team of planets, which is led by the Moon, and the Moon has as its teammates Venus and Mars. Yeah, and let's just uh, pause here for a moment around the sect rejoicing conditions that have to do with this above or below hemisphere. And um, it is said that the planets that belong to the solar or diurnal sect, Jupiter and Saturn, and Mercury if it's morning rising, rejoice or happier when they are located in the same hemisphere as is the sun, because they do better by the light of day what they stand for in terms of their significations, at least Jupiter, certainly, um, the activities are um, of, uh, are more enhanced during the daytime hours. Uh, I want to, Saturn is placed in that because of its cold nature being warmed up and being more benefic. But the point that I wanted to make is when you look for the rejoicing hemisphere of the nocturnal or the night planets, it's not a matter of whether they're in the same hemisphere as the moon, but they have to do with being in the opposite hemisphere than the sun. So that the nocturnal planets like to be where it's night. That's their preferred environment. Um, and certainly... Um, Venus that has to do with um, sexual activity and pleasure generally happens in the night after the work of the day is done. So that's her preferred environment. Mars, they say, because he's so rash and, and impulsive that's enhanced by fiery daytime energy, is more tempered and reasonable and um, benefic when in the coolness of night. But the moon can be located in the daytime hemisphere. So that's the reason if you have a new moon, a waxing moon, when you see it in the sky, it's still daytime. And so this is why the rejoicing by hemisphere doesn't have to do for the night planets, doesn't have to do with being in the same hemisphere as the moon, but being in the opposite hemisphere as the sun. So once again, we see how the sun sets the stage, so to speak, for many other conditions. Yeah, so it is the one that's kind of in charge in some sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's see, let's go back to our significations of Valens before we move on to another author, since all of these are so central. Um, let's see, so kingship, We've talked about sect a little bit. We'll come back to that a little bit. Right. With, with kingship, do you want to say something about uh, Leo, um, in which the sun rules, is the lion, um, the image of the lion, and the lion was considered like the, the king of the jungle, so to speak. So um, Yeah. Right. So in there, you have another connection with the royalty associated with the sun and Leo. Right. Um, yeah, royalty, leadership, centrality, um, being in charge of things or being the one that calls the shots in some way. Um, sometimes there being a, uh, I don't want to say egotistical, but um, a, a 
point to that where sometimes taken in the wrong way or or when taken in an extreme direction can be like overly focused on the self and the sense of self uh, or attracting power to itself or acting um, completely on a, in accord with its own wishes and not taking into account those of others. Um, okay. So one of the things, you know, I translated these into English and used English terms that I thought were best for some of these, but some of these words that are used in Greek could actually be like an entire episode in and of itself. Like one of them, for example, is mind or noose, um, as well as intelligence. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about those two. Yes, um, in the previous episode you did on the uh, moon, mm-hmm. the discussion um, uh, centered around the moon as the body, of right. being embodied, of being um, brought into physicality, as being contrasted to the mind, which is connected with the sun, as being outside the body or something more ethereal or abstract. Yeah, like a a mind-body or a spirit-body distinction. Right. And one of the points that, there are several points I want to make, but first of all is to, um, I just want to speak for a moment of a Buddhist uh, belief that talks about what they call the precious human body because it's only by being alive in a body that a person through the faculties of their mind through visualization and other spiritual practices can achieve spiritual liberation or consciousness. And so in that way that the mind is separated in astrology with moon sun um, doesn't imply that one is more important than the other or that the mind for the sun is elevated over the body because without the body the mind can't do its thing so to speak of attaining full consciousness and realization so i just want to make that point and establish that so um, I'm not misunderstood as going off on <laughs> the mental qualities of the mind. Um, sure. I also found it interesting that um, Israel had, he was, uh, Cancer, was that true with the moon exalted in Taurus? Yeah, from my last episode. Right, right from your last episode, moon, and he was talking about the moon, the moon with- and you have me for the sun, and I'm um, a Leo with a Leo rising, so... In some way, like you've picked embodiments of the planets or signs to give these talks, and I found that like um, very—it made me smile as I was listening to that discussion going on. But in terms of contrasting to that one, um, for me, having that strong fire energy and air energy uh, with the Gemini Moon. I have found being in my body and being in the world is really challenging. Mm. And I often see it as providing endless obstacles for me to have to deal with 
in order to have that free-floating mental space that's my preferred environment. And so there's this quality of the sun having to do with the mind and intelligence is that it could be the case that people with the emphasis on the solar diurnal energies um, are more comfortable and what sort not only comfortable, but they feel more confident and capable in operating in the mental realms of pure ideas. And again, coming from a very like filtered expression of myself without being constantly thwarted by having to deal with the physicalities of the world. And so in that way, and, you know, we saw that even in getting ready for this discussion that always right before any webinar, I'm tangled up in getting all the, the microphone and the camera and the wires and the plugs and um, clicking all the different things I have to click. And it becomes this whole terrifying process before I can then just speak. And so in that way, I see that challenge that exists between solar and lunar states of consciousness with dealing with the realms of ideas and dealing with the realm of physicality in the body. Yeah, I like that contrast um, between the sun and the moon. And there's a lot, you know, when we're introducing one planet, which was just the moon last time, we're talking about one thing. But now that we have two, it's nice having this binary to contrast of mind versus body or, or physical incarnation versus one's mental or, or spiritual sort of side and sometimes having contrasts in astrology is really rich and that's where a lot of the meanings come from that you can only come up with the meaning for one thing when you can contrast it against whatever its opposite must be. Mm -hmm. And then do you want to talk about the mind in terms of um, visualization, of image, of concepts, of having a creative vision or idea that you then try to bring into form, that sometimes the artist has a vision of what they then becomes the object of their, um, of what they bring about or, and, um, with that, when we talk about the sun and moon and the lots of fortune and spirit and the moon having to do and a lot of fortune having to do with the body and the health and the comfort and the physical well-being, but the sun and a lot of spirit having to do with our intentionality of what it is that we envision that we want to bring about. And then through that being linked with our profession or career sometimes or um, our actions in the world that arise from some sort of mental construct. Yeah, those are two significations from Valens I did want to bring up, and that's a good segue, which are, um, he mentions motion and then action, and the term he uses for action is prox proxis, um, which means action literally, but it also came to mean like um, occupation and um, doings or like what you do for work. Um, because it's that which you 
bring into motion or the way in which you bring something into motion through action into the world? Right. That's all absolutely true. And that there is a different, uh, another way in which Proxis had this sense of actions, especially connected with the 10th house. Um, and that had to do with actions that were seen as virtuous by which one could um, gain honor and respect in the eyes of one's peers. So it wasn't only the actions you did for your occupation, but the actions that you did that gave you a sort of moral accountability where being seen as honorable resulted in privileges or money or good associations, whereas being seen as dishonorable was one of the worst offenses because then not only did you not get certain rewards, but your family was seen as being a dishonorable family because of your actions and denied from um, positions of um, privilege, um, of money, of opportunities, of jobs, of educations, because of one's own honorable or dishonorable actions. So that word proxis has a deeper meaning than simply your job. It has to do with your honor and the actions that lead to that. And that sense of um, honor and justice are very much connected with the sun. Okay, that makes sense. And that really ties into his other significations of being honored by portraits, by statues, and by crowns of office, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, and then other things I want to mention before we move off of Valens is when he starts assigning um, parts of the body, he says that the sun rules the heart. And I thought that was really important and interesting. And again, another way that we can link back to the idea of centrality that the sun or that the heart is literally that organ that pumps blood through the rest of the body. And that um, while in some instances it's like you can lose other organs and kind of still survive, like if you if your heart is pierced or something, then um, that can be it for you. I mean, that's it's such a central organ that that everything else um, is supported by and flows from and is enlivened by uh, that um, it sort of in some way is this sort of um, I don't know, not king of the body, but something close to that. Right, and then. Um Whereas in our contemporary culture, we think that the mind is located in our head, in our brain. Um, there were many cultures that believed that the center of the mind was in the heart. And so in that, we see this connection and balance between the sun ruling both the mind and the heart. Mm. Right. And while it rules the head in terms of our vision, um, there may be a way in which um, it's located in the heart rather than the head. Okay. Um, and then the last thing is just, um, it also, when it goes to substances, says that the sun rules gold, and gold being like the metal associated with the sun, which has been pretty consistent throughout the Western astrological tradition. And again, this notion of it not being just central, but being the most valued um, metal in the world. 
Right. And on the very basic level, we can see that gold is the color of the sun. Right. right. Whereas silver is closer to the color of our perception of the moon. Right. Um, yeah. And, and it's funny sometimes, like recent stories about famous people or presidents that like to decorate things in gold that had like a, a prominent um, Leo rising or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we talk about the gold standard and, you know, our money system like used to be these bricks of gold <laughs> stored in the vault. Right. Right. Um, and then uh, let's see. I mean, I wanted to mention one other thing uh, with the heart thing, just to go back to that. That sometimes some of these significations can be metaphorical, but sometimes it can be really literal and it can pertain to things like about a person's heart in some instances. Yeah. yeah so when you're doing um, medical astrology, or if you're looking at, well, it's it's hard because if you're doing medical astrology, the moon is the general significator of the body and our health as a sort of planetary indicator. But certainly myself being a double Leo, I've had like two major um, heart incidents in my life that have required um, surgery. And so we could say that people who have strong solar energy or strong Leo energy, that the care of the heart should be a concern that they keep um, foremost in the, our minds. Right. Uh, or even um, Valence says not just that the sun is like the all-seeing sun and um, the instrument of perception of the soul, but also that uh, from a physical or medical standpoint that it does rule one of the eyes at least, if not the eyesight in general. And sometimes like I've, I remember having a transit where I got like an eye infection and my son was afflicted at the time or something like that. And sometimes you'll see very literal manifestations in the astrology of your organ of perception, organs of perception being affected when your son is getting a serious transit. Right. And um, Chris, in the optical theory during the um, ancient time period where they thought that rays coming out of one eye landed upon an object and then the rays that came back into the other eye. You, I know that you wrote about that. And were the emitting rays out of the right eye and the receiving rays coming back into the left eye that was right. part of the aspect theory? Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why we have the idea of um, overcoming aspects versus hurling rays and like through the traditional domicile rulership scheme the notion of rays being emitted by the sun in leo and going forward in zodiacal order versus the moon um, receiving the rays of the planets from the other signs of the zodiac from like you know aquarius pisces aries taurus forward into its placement in cancer so there's a whole optical theory there tied into ancient optical theories. Um, all right, so that might be good for Valens. I want to make maybe we should keep moving so we can get through some of the others. I don't know if they're yeah. I think we covered most of the core ones from Valens. So here we're going to jump forward several centuries. So that was the the Hellenistic or the Greco-Roman tradition, and then the next one 
you wrote down from the 9th century astrologer Abu Mashar, who was one of the most famous medieval astrologers that we've talked about in a few episodes recently. Um, do you want to read this one? Okay. Uh, you're, the, the sun is a benefic. Its nature is hot and dry. It indicates the animal soul. This is Burnett's translation, but I might... Alternate translations have had the life spirit mm. um, as okay. being a translation of the as being another translation of the word used for animal soul. Um, light, brightness, the intellect, knowledge, intelligence, leaders, leadership, nobility, communities of men, wealth, riches, eloquence, cleanliness, judgment, religion, the life to come. Fathers, middle brothers, mixing with men, powers over evil men. It brings good fortune. It brings bad fortune. At one time, it raises. At another time, it brings down. Okay. And that was from the lesser introduction or the abbreviation to the introduction to astrology of Abu Mashar sometime around the middle of the ninth century. Right. And this was translated by Burnett from the Arabic, not the later Latin translation. And I believe Ben, well, Ben has pieces of this translation, but I, I think that when he did that, he was taking it from the Latin in his introduction to astrology book. Do you know okay. for sure about that, Chris? Um, yeah, I think he was still doing the Latin at that point, but I'm not positive, but I'm sure since he just translated the greater introduction, maybe he'll translate the Arabic version of the lesser introduction sometime before too long. Um, all right, so a lot of this is familiar to us from Valens. There's a lot of continuity, even though this is what seven centuries later, and it's been translated and it's in a different language now in Arabic, and astrology has changed a little bit. There's still quite a bit of, con of continuity. Um, one of the things it mentions, though, to come back to an echo one from Valens is family members and especially the father, and just the notion of the father and. This is something that comes up a lot in like modern astrology with its psychological bent and like the focus in the 20th century on psychologically the foundational role that the native's parents have in helping us to form our personality and our habits and our early home life having a lot of impact on who we later become as adults and the son's role in representing at one point balance says not just the father but the father the, the person who acts like a father figure to the native, um, and in some ways describing different ways either about the native's relationship with their father or father figure, or um, sometimes like literally what the circumstances were with that person in general in the person's life. What are your thoughts about that in terms of like the, especially from a modern standpoint, the psychological impact of whatever the father figure is that's represented right. in the chart. Okay, I'm like going through my mind now trying to um, organize mm -hmm. because we can talk about the role of the father um, as being central to the child's life in the connection with the fourth house. And then that brings us into the whole is the fourth house, the father, or the mother, and what is the story on the 10th house Right. Being the mother, and then like going back to the fourth house as father. So it's like, it do you want to go how, there? Is that where you want to go? No, I mean, I think 
Okay. Only okay. if you're so willing to I'll, go three I'll hours. Then I'll pull that back. So we're at one hour now. So we've got an right, hour right. to get through the rest. Okay. So I'll pull that whole discussion back and say, in um, the time period when Hellenistic astrology was being formulated, that it was the father after the child was born, the father picking up the child and placing the child on the la- on his lap, which was a sign that he acknowledged the child as his and gave it legitimacy that allowed it to, the child to inherit the paternal legacy associated with fourth house matters. And so, it was the acknowledgement by the father that gave the child his position and status, um, and hence the education and opportunities that it might receive in the course of its lifetime. And so from that point of view, the father had, again, one of the central organizing principles of the child's life. Mm. Then father also comes from the idea of the son being um, the divine masculine, the God, the divine masculine, which then as it filters down becomes the king of the country and then becomes the father of the household. Or in some ways we could go the oikodespotes or the master of the house or of the estate. And so in those ways, the sun was seen as a primary paternal symbol. And then Saturn was also seen as a symbol of the father, but particularly in the night chart, that when it's night and the sun like goes away to wherever it goes to, Saturn then assumes the um, rulership over the father by night. So they also made that distinction. The son was a principle of the father, particularly by day. Um, and Saturn came into his rule of that, especially by night. Yeah. And I think that like the lot of the father was a son-Saturn lot, right? Oh, I don't know that. Okay. Um, so one of the things we talked about that's tied in with this in the moon episode with Israel Josie was the notion of um, the mother being represented by the moon and the native actually coming from the mother's body and being um uh, being with the mother for the first like 8 or 9 months as as a part or extension of her body and the moon being the closest celestial body to us um just in terms of proximity and in terms of the spheres and in that way um, at least in terms of the immediacy of one's parents having a much more immediate and much more physical connection with the mother, but then the son still being this other huge celestial body that is out there and that is the other large celestial body that is the same from our vantage point size as the moon and therefore has uh, an equal or otherwise important um, role to play in the native's life even if it's not um, in an immediate physical connection in the same way that the the mother's role is? How do you feel about that? Well, this I don't know as if I have so much to say. The 
mother as matrix is the body and the nurturing principle mm-hmm. um, that is especially active during the um, gestation and early years of the child's life. Mm-hmm. Um, the father is the, um, I don't know if we want to go into like conception and sexuality matters, but the um, father can be connected with the action associated with the sperm that swims and fertilizes the receptive egg. And the father becomes active later, well, becomes more active later in the child's life as I said before, establishes the child's position in society. Mm, okay. Um, and even just in a modern context, like sitting down and let's talk about not just a purely an ancient context, but looking at people's charts, I do feel like sometimes um, with the sun as a general significator, that sometimes like close aspects to the sun can sometimes describe the relationship with the father figure or close aspects to the moon can describe the relationship with the mother figure in some way. Do you feel like that's that's true or that's shown up for you? Well, one of the things that I've seen is um, that when the sun and moon are in the 12th house, um, one of the questions I've always asked clients was, was there some difficulty or loss associated with your father if it's the sun or with the moon if it's with your mother. And often the response was yes, that that was the relationship that had some sort of loss or tragedy connected with with them. So in that way, I've seen the sun and moon reflecting the father and mother relationships. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there can be different um, combinations with that. Or if it's like a really positive thing, sometimes like a conjunction with Jupiter or something in a day chart, maybe the father figure ended up relationship ended up being better. And if there's like difficulties with the moon, Mm -hmm. maybe that relationship was more difficult or vice versa. But just in terms of um, sometimes the placement of the sun or the moon as just general significators on their own, um, indicating things about important figures in the person's life? Right. I mean, I've tried to follow that through in my own chart, which is, does my moon indicate, um, describe my mother and my relationship with her? Or does the ruler of the fourth house, which is a different planet, more describe my mother? Or does the ruler of the 10th house, which has also been seen as the mother, better describe her? And the same process with the son and the ruler of the 4th and the ruler of the 10th with my father. And for myself, I've never been able to make sense of any of that. So I don't know the answer. Okay. I mean, for me, it's worked out pretty well because I my son is like in Scorpio and it's sandwiched in between a conjunction with Saturn and a conjunction with Pluto. And my father passed away when I was like five. And most of the delineations early on are like 
the modern psychological delineations of like the late 20th century, like there's some issue with the father and there may be some distance or loss involving the father. And even as a general archetypal delineation, like that's pretty straightforward and pretty accurate, I would say. And while it doesn't always have to be that extreme, I think sometimes even just general yeah, delineations in, in, like in, that can be accurate. Right. In general, my son is on the cadence side of my ascendant. So depending on what you want to do with that. And I also lost my father when by the time I was four. So that there was a loss associated with that cadent position of of the son. Whether or not okay. I want to call it the twelfth house or not. So you- I've se- that I've seen that I mentioned, but other things um I don't know. Okay. Do you share your chart or do you mind if we share it? Yeah, certainly. It's fine. It's out there in public domain. So, Okay. I'm going to put it up right now if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, right. Because you you also have a Sun-Saturn conjunction. So I also even have if- a Sun-Saturn conjunction, yes. And so you- from that point of view, Saturn is in my 12th house, both by whole sign as well as by quadrant system. Okay. Um, yeah, so both of those could be relevant, not just the sun being on the 12th house side of the quadrant system, even though it's in the first house, but also just the uh, th- within three degree sun Saturn conjunction. Yes. Um, and that's also ties into sect and just, you know, um, even though Saturn is supposed to be more constructive and is more constructive in day charts, it's still, especially when the person is young, those Saturn aspects can be experienced as real sore points or real major obstacles and difficulties that early in the life are not, you know, experienced very easily, um, but can still be formative um, obstacles and challenges or difficulties in the native's life in some way. De- definitely. Yeah. Right. And you know, Saturn is augmented with not only being in that position, but also being in Cancer, the sign of its. Um, detriment or antithesis. And, you know, to the extent you had associated Saturn with rejection and cancer as emotions, that there was some sort of abandonment principle with the father, even though he didn't voluntarily die, he nevertheless did die. And the emotional um, imprint that the child receives at a point before they can understand what happened is that of abandonment. Yeah, and I think to me that's that's really important, and that's one of the great, really um, powerful things I think that modern psychological astrology did develop is just talking about how some of those early life psych- psychological um, events and things that happen in the first seven years of life can really impact the entirety of the rest of the native's life in very significant ways. And that when I first got into astrology. I expected it to be much more concrete and straightforward and predictive. And what I found was like late 20th century modern psychological astrology, and that it it wasn't as straightforward and predictive um, as I would later find that ancient astrology is or was. But the one area where modern astrology was more predictive was in making psychological statements that if you have X configuration, then it may set up these types of family dynamics early in your life, and it could lead to like X outcome as a result of that. And there was still something that's very, I think, powerful about that to me in some sense. Right. I mean, I totally agree with you there. And my personal position on what is the ultimate 
value or purpose of astrology has to do with a kind of healing of the soul. And part of that has to do with um, helping clarify what it is that you can do that brings you to a sense of having a meaningful or purposeful life. And that this is where the ancient astrology can help provide a solid foundation for making those understandings or judgments. But it's ultimately what modern astrology has stressed in terms of psychological healing that is the value that astrology has to our lives, much more so than predicting when some event is going to happen in the future. Right. The name of one of your previous books from 2008 was Astrology and the Authentic Self, and that notion of tr- of finding through astrology or astrology helping you to find your authentic self. Exactly, and that the um, and this is uh, something that um, I was influenced in my thinking by Rudyard, um, who of my generation, we almost everyone read Rudyard, and sometimes I smile and let someone say, "Well," and we said, "Oh, he completely influenced us." And then someone asked, "Well, what exactly did he say?" And we we could we would respond. We don't know exactly what he said, but he totally influenced our thinking. Right. So, um, but that's an aside. But that the sun as our intention, as our vision, helps illuminate what our larger purpose is in the world that leads to a meaningful life and thus a happy life. That like doing what you can do well and is part one of the and is one of the basis for happiness and so many of my clients would come in like not knowing what they were supposed to be doing and there was endless suffering through trying one thing or another and experiencing failure and disappointment and frustration and so that the sun can illuminate what that larger agenda is but the moon as the sun's partner is then how do we bring that into form? How do we manifest it in the everyday world? And this is where the sun and moon can work together in having the vision, having the idea, um, having a side of the agenda, and the moons is the means by which one actualizes that. And so that was part really the underpinnings of astrology and the authentic self is using both traditional and modern astrology to discern what each of those meant and then working the ascendant in with that is the third point. Um, so That's one piece, but the other piece that we haven't mentioned yet that I want to make sure we get in here that has to do with with the sun and moon is that, um, oh, we're starting with the psychological astrology and that's how we got to that, but that one of the main inquiries of ancient astrologers had to do with longevity and length of life. And by and large, they saw the sun and moon as being the primary indicators of where 
the vital essence or the life force is most concentrated. And then they would land upon, ideally, using the sun or moon as their starting point for then understanding the um, trajectory of the life force of the individual. So in those ways, the sun is more than just our mind. It's more than just our indication of our life purpose or agenda. It has to do with one of the two factors that indicates the most vital and life-giving source or center within our being. Right. So how is our chart and where in our chart are things um, enlivened or um, put into some sort of actualization in some way? Yeah, the, yeah, the enlivening come from the sun and moon, in particular the um, vision of what we're supposed to do can be found from the sun, and the understanding of how to actually do it in the world comes from the moon. Okay, so this then is why the like your big three is so important. You have your sun, your moon, and your rising. Right, exactly. And you know, if I were to use my own chart to illustrate that with the sun in Leo and the moon in Gemini, um, I've often been asked of what was it that I most valued in how I lived my life, and I said to have the freedom to live a intellectually creative life. And one could see that as the sun and Leo having to do with the mind and the creativity. And then my moon is in Gemini in the the 11th house and how I manifested that through endless teaching and presentations and books and writings, Gemini to... 11th house groups of people through the astrological community. And so right. the sun generates the vision of the intellectual creativity. The moon anchors it by bringing that vision into the world. Okay, brilliant. Um, one uh, piece I meant to bring up in terms of the centrality of the sun that's really important that I, I want is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about the sun more than anybody else is the um, solar phase cycle and the relationship oh, yeah. that all the rest of the planets right. have. Um, so Paula Bellomini helped me make a simplified version of like the solar phase cycle diagram, um, partially connected with yours and partially connected with one that was made by Robert Schmidt. And um, this shows the synodic cycles of the superior planets Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and their relationship with the sun, because this ties in, in in two ways. One of them is that We've been talking about the the role and the power of the sun to illuminate things and to make them clear or bright as a result of its light. But one of the interesting contradictory things in ancient astrology is that when planets get too close to the sun, they um, were said to be under the beams with the, when they're within 15 degrees of it, and they're said to become hidden or not visible and this is sometimes interpreted in a negative sense in ancient texts when planets get too sun- close to the sun so that they get either burnt up by the ra- harsh rays of the sun or they become invisible. 
So I've got that one for the outer planets, and then another one for the inner planets, Venus and uh, Mercury. And this one maybe is a little bit more clear for under the beams and when the planets get too close to within 15 degrees of a conjunction with the sun. So the sun has the power to both illuminate things, but also the power to hide or obscure things as well. Right. Okay. So let me start talking about that. Um, going back to um, Greek mythology, and they said that the planets were um, fiery light, and mortals did not want to make the gods appear to them because then they would be consumed and burnt up in the rays of the god. And there's this um, mythological story about um, Dionysus's mother, Semele, who was um, having an affair with uh, Zeus or Jupiter, and Hera uh, became, Jupiter's wife became very jealous over the affair and disguised herself as, um, and presented herself to Semele with the um, conversation about you should demand, you should extract a promise from him and demand that this God who's visiting you reveal himself. And Jupiter, Zeus, was very reluctant to do that, but somehow he got tricked into the promise. And then when he did manifest as fiery light, then she was consumed and burnt up in the flames. And Jupiter, Zeus, managed to rescue the baby Dionysus out of her womb before he was born and insert him into a cut in his own thigh and bring him to um, gestation and birth. And so that there's a warning of don't get too close to the gods and do, don't demand to see them because one will be burnt by their rays. And so we have this image of a planet being too close to the sun, being under its beams, as being debilitated or made weaker. And often when I teach, I say, imagine that it's summertime and you're living in um, a climate where it's 100, you're living in Arizona and it's 120 degrees by day at noon. And you have to go to the grocery store and you have to walk and it's three miles away. And you've walked that distance, you've bought a big bag of groceries, and then you walk home. And imagine how heat exhausted you might feel at that point. And that's the kind of debilitation or weakening that occurs when the planet is too close to the sun. And so there was different um, ranges. Um, it became standardized to 15, but even some astrologers, like Paulus mentioned, well, 12 degrees was really the range. And then medieval astrologers gave the combust range to 8 degrees and then sometimes 3 degrees so that there, were, there was a gradation that happened. But if a planet was in the heart of the sun, which for the me medieval astrologers they called Kazemi, which was 17 minutes away, or for the Hellenistic astrologers, 
Um, I believe it was, um, um, I'm trying Retorious. to think it was Rhetorius who said if it's one degree on either side of the sun, um, then it's protected being in the heart. And one might imagine the eye at the center of the hurricane being like beautiful, calm, sunny, lovely weather where everything else is raging around. Or there is, um, uh, Bonatti mentioned that when you're in the heart of the sun, it's as if the, um, Zeus or the God has picked you up and put you on his lap and that you're in that state of protection. So that there is a belief that when the planet was right there in the center, it was protected from the debilitating rays of the sun. Now, can you put that diagram back up again? Sure. Hold on just a sec. Let me share one other image. Um, the other myth that it makes me think of also is the myth of Icarus. Right. Um, when Icarus right, flew too close to the sun, ignoring his father's warning, he was burnt up and he fell to the ground. Right. And um, uh, so that's another depiction of the danger of getting too close to the sun as the deity in his fiery, life-giving rays. So here's the inner planet uh, diagram. Is that the one you wanted? Yeah, that's the one I wanted. And um, a planet was off. Was said that when it made its heliacal um, set as an evening star, and this is the inner planet diagram. Yeah. Yeah, for, with just just applies to Mercury and Venus. Mer Mercury and Venus, um, okay, because you have the retrograde here. But even for the outer planet, when a planet becomes its evening star and makes its helical set, it was thought to die as it entered the underworld, which was sometimes conceptualized as being under the sun's beams, was entering into the underworld. And then when it made its heliacal morning rise, it was believed to be reborn, and that was the power of the um, morning rise position. And that from um, a sort of mystery initiation perspective, um, initiation was likened to a journey through the underworld. And it was right at the um, conjunction of the planet with the sun, of being the heart of the sun, where the great mystery took place that had to do with insemination um, and renewed life that then emerged at the heliacal rise. And so... On an ordinary level, we can see this going under the sun's beams as a weakening or debilitation. But on a secret um, mystery level, we can simultaneously see this as an initiatory process that has to do with, as I said, connecting with the great mystery of life, which is how does the renewed life come out of death, and that one can understand that simultaneously with looking at the chart. Right. And and as the the end of one cycle as well as the beginning of another cycle in terms of the planet's phase relationship with the sun. 
Exactly. Okay. And it's like, when we look at aspects, um, is being one of the main, uh, criteria of planetary condition, we're looking at planets' aspects with one another and if they actually have them by whole sign or by degree. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the solar phase cycle, every planet has a relationship with the sun. And that relationship has an interpretive meaning, regardless of whether or not there is some kind of aspect between the sun and the planet. And it's the planet's relationship with the sun that um, resulted in the visible phenomena that we see associated with planets that have to do with the planet's speed, whether it's moving fast or slow, whether it is visible or not visible, and whether it's direct or retrograde in motion. So if I can just like take you briefly through this process, and I don't have a pointer, but Chris, you'll have to move your cursor. And let's start with um, the uh, conjunction. Okay, when the so planet on the left is, side of the diagram? Yeah, when the planet is conjunct the sun. And it is, um, for the outer planets, the planets moving very fast at this point in their cycle. And then when they clear the 15 degree point, they, and when they're under the sun's beams, they can't be seen. So even though they're really fast, they're invisible. At the 15 degree point heliacal rise, they is their first visibility. And this was seen as the most auspicious moment in the planet's cycle. Um, that was often seen as a sort of flashing on the horizon. Um, and Schmidt coined the word phosis for this point in the cycle where the planet's energies are intensified. And its first visibility as a morning star goes back to the earliest Mesopotamian astrology of a planet rising over the horizon, the Egyptian astrology with the decant stars making that first appearance after their death in the underworld then a planet um, starts becoming effective at this point in the cycle. It's heliacal morning rise. It is um, visible in the sky. It's moving with faster than average motion at the sextile, average at its first square relative to the sun. And as it approaches the trine, it begins to slow down and make its retrograde station right around its first trine. And here we're looking at diurnal motion of the planets that goes in a clockwise direction as opposed to zodiacal motion that moves in the counterclockwise manner. And And so that's a really cool, unique thing that most people don't know, but it's really important to to pay attention to that when any of the outer planets like Mars, Jupiter, Saturn get within that trine of the sun, that they're they're going to station retrograde. Exactly. If they haven't turned retrograde yet, they're about to turn retrograde. So this is something you can kind of eyeball. Like if you know the sun is in um, Taurus, for example, then you know that uh, planets that are in what the other trine, the upwards trine yeah. in the other Earth sign are getting ready Capricorn, to station yeah. in Capricorn. Yeah, and it's standing still at the station. And then as it moves into its retrograde, and this is what we call, I call the, it's called the achronical phase. Um, 
it not only slows down, but its appearance in the sky is of moving backwards. Mm-hmm. So this is the retrograde? This is the retrograde. And this was considered problematical by ancient astrologers. And again, the teaching image I've often used is you have an appointment for a job interview. Um, you're on the freeway. It's a straight shot ahead. Traffic's good. You're moving along at a great pace. You're going to get there early and you can have a coffee before it happens. And then all of a sudden there's an accident in the road. It's all blocked and there's a detour sign and they're taking cars off the freeway onto a service road. And all of a sudden your four lanes of traffic have merged into one. You're going really slow in the opposite direction of where you're trying to get to. And the frustration that you feel of being hampered or having your feet tied, which was an analogy used in um, medieval astrology of shackles around one's feet as one entered into that retrograde phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have here at that first stationary retrograde is that the planet is strong and then it starts weakening. Mm-hmm. It continues to be slow through its opposition to the sun. And if you have Mars, Jupiter, Saturn opposite your sun, it's going to be retrograde. Yeah, that's so so crucial and so important. That's, that's like- so crucial. And it took me 25 years of being an astrologer before that was I actually realized that that was the case. That was right. something that we, I was never taught um, as learning astrology. So we know that any time you see Mars, Jupiter, Saturn opposite to the sun or in the, even in the opposite sign from the sun, they're always going to be retrograde? Always going to be retrograde. They're going to be retrograde for, from the, that first station through the opposition. And what happens right around the opposition is the planet that's been moving slow has a temporary burst of speed. And the medieval astrologers explained these outer planets, superior planets, um, that were opposite as being rebellious or pushing the envelope, so to speak, or erratic in their um, actions. And then the planets... uh, passes that opposition, it's um slow begins it's picking up from its speed it's starting to slow down until it becomes stationary again at the second trine, it which it turns direct and it's starting to gain in strength. And then it proceeds toward um picking up speed, becoming average at the square faster than average at the sextile, making its helical set at 15 degrees before the sun, moving very fast and being burned up in the rays. But how this works interpretively that can be very helpful, that if you know a planet, well, it may still be direct, but it's about to go retrograde, you have this sense of strength starting to weaken. Um, if it's at its other trine, having been retrograde and starting to go to d- direct, it's like you've been, the planet is weak, but in its 
future, it's going to get stronger. So that's a completely different interpretive quality that you give to the planet, um, being at either of those two points in its cycle. Right. So you got to pay attention if a planet's stationing, is it stationing from direct going retrograde or is it going from retrograde great to direct? direct? And these stationary points are also considered points of great intensity, as is the heliacal set, which is at 15 degrees right before it goes into the underworld, which again is a point of weakening. And in trying to understand that um, intensity and weakening, I sometimes see that as what they would call the warrior's last stand, that you've been in a battle and you know that you're losing, but there's one last, you know, fight to have and all of the troops are rallied and you put on your best show before the descent goes into the underworld. And that's part of an interpretive intensification that can be understood with the heliacal set and then that rebirth of the beginning of one's power at the heliacal rise. So understanding where a planet is relative to the sun at all of these different stages can show if it's moving faster than average. There's a lot going on. You're getting a lot of things done. You're feeling productive. Um, if it's moving slower than average, you're taking your time. Things may need to gestate before they come about. Um, sometimes people feel depressed when they aren't taking care of their business or they can't get motivated. But it's also understanding that this is not necessarily a time for moving fast, but for rethinking what you thought your plan was generally during that retrograde period and um, revising it before you start moving again with the direct station. So um, there are all these different ways in which the planet's relationship with the sun affects it's not only visible in the sky, but it affects how we interpret it. Yeah, and how the planet functions in the chart. So again, we come back to this idea of the centrality of the sun, and we can see that the sun's relationship to all of the other planets really dictates what their condition is in some ways, um, with the sun acting as the central like king or power broker for all of the other planets. Um, so two things from this, I mean, one of the things is that it seems like some of the basic meanings of the aspects then get tied into the solar phase cycle and things like what is the nature of an opposition, needing to partially understand that within the context of this, that for the outer planets at least, the nature of the opposition partially comes about as a result of the planets being retrograde yeah. when they are um, opposite to the sun. And that may be providing important insight as well as the trines, the trines with the sun and planets stationing retrograde or direct when they're trines. Right, the power that comes from that um, standing still, uh, being totally right. focused um, and concentrated for a period of time. Yeah, so there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff there. And the other thing is planets going under the beams getting interpreted, especially in ancient Hellenistic texts, as both hidden um, and there's something hidden about um, the planet when it's within 15 degrees. So Rhetorius says if like the ruler of the lot of marriage is under the beams of the sun, 
that um, the person will get married in secret or something like that or have a secret relationship. Yeah. So sometimes interpreted literally as, as something hidden or obscure in the person's life. And the other interpretation was sometimes when a planet's under the beams, they would give an interpretation of like an internalization of the significations of the planets where usually they're giving that in a medical context. Like Valen says, if a planet's indicating something medically and it's not under the beams, if it's visible, then it indicates an external, let's say, ailment or injury to the body. Whereas if the planet is under the beams, it indicates something within the body, an internal ailment of some sort. And I think that might be a good way where we could access that from a modern astrological standpoint as being like external things versus maybe things that have been internalized in some way. Exactly. And you know, we could also speak of it from having a powerful inner life as opposed to an outer life of being an introvert as opposed to being an extrovert. Right. Um, it's not only secret or hidden matters, but of whether one primarily lives in an inner world or an outer world. Yeah, those parts of us that are internal versus external. Um, and that ties into the other diagram because the way the solar phase cycle works with the inner planets, Venus and Mercury, is a little bit different. Even though there's similarities, they still have that 15 degree range for heliacal rise and set. Um, but Mercury and Venus never get more than Mercury 28 degrees away from the Sun and Venus 48 degrees away. So as a result of that, they'll never get to the point where they're square or trine or in opposition to the sun, but they still have a, a phase relationship to it. Right. And I'm going to say something here that's really important that you can't actually see with this diagram, that Mercury and Venus, um, because they don't have that expanded cycle, they'll never make the sextile square opposition with the sun. They have two conjunctions um, in one complete cycle. And one conjunction is when they're retrograde. The other conjunction is when they're direct. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a different interpretive meaning. If you have Sun conjunct Mercury and Mercury is retrograde or Sun conjunct Mercury where Mercury is direct. But what's even more important for people who are starting to look at that 15 degree range as being a point of intensification that when you see one of these planets at 15 degrees away from the sun, you can't tell by simply looking at the chart whether the planet has just made its heliacal rise and is getting stronger, or if it's 15 degrees away and it's just made its morning set and is heading toward being under the beams and its next conjunction to the sun, which is a place of weakening. And the same thing with after the superior conjunction, these two planets make an evening rise that are 15 degrees away from the sun. But the medieval astrologers love Mercury and Venus at the evening rise because not only were they direct, but that they were moving fast. And they saw that sometimes as being preferable to the morning rise. Or it might be an evening star um, and being 15 degrees from the sun, and it's about to make its heliacal set. And again, the heliacal rise and set are interpreted completely differently 
but they both hover around that 15 degree point. So one has to look at the ephemeris in that case and to see if the distance between the planets is increasing on successive days, they've made their rise, or if the planet is decreasing in its distance from the sun on successive days, then they've made the set. And that becomes of utmost interpretive importance. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and another, this is one of the, you can do that with, with an ephemeris. And I'm, I'm going to make a video at some point about how to like read an ephemeris so that you can look things like this up. But that's also another, something you can do with astrology software. And one of like the real wonders of like modern astrology software is being able to animate the chart and move it forward or backwards in days in order to see right uh, if it's right if it's at that point it's moving toward the sun or it's moving away from the sun yeah if you just like animate a chart day by day and keep moving it forward one day at a time you see if mercury and venus if they're increasing their distance from the sun or if they're decreasing it so right um, when i was like trying to set this in place and especially for writing and teaching about it um, I plotted Mercury's distance from the sun on graph paper mm -hmm. um, for the period of a year um, and showed its sort of rising and setting above and beneath the horizon with its retrograde and direct periods. And one of the things that we see, particularly with Mercury cycle, is that um, there are a different amount of days for it in each cycle, having to do with when it's under the beams and when it's at its greatest elongation, which is sometimes said to be the optimal period for working with one's intellect. And we see that variability in the cycle. So um, having that, and this is where I feel like, again, I'm old school, having that familiarity with the ephemeris makes the cycle more embodied mm. than um, looking at a rotating wheel on screen of yeah, understanding definitely. what's actually happening with the planet's speed and motion relative to the sun. Yeah, especially somebody asked me just last night on social media what ephemeris, and I always recommend the the American ephemeris because it'll show the retrograde phases when they're sh it'll shade them when the planets retrograde, so you'll see the different color for that number of days. And people should just get like the midnight American ephemeris, and that's a great starting point. Mm -hmm. Um. All right, so ephemeris. Now you have even more detail. These are like simplified versions of these diagrams, just because I didn't want to confuse people too much. But you have full chapters that go into this, and this is something I glossed over in my book. And basically, I have a footnote where I said you'll deal with it more in yours, and you did have several chapters going into the solar right, phase cycle. Right, close to hundred pages on this. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So. Um, if people, this is all a lot that we're throwing out because it's kind of a, a teaser, but if people want to learn more about the solar phase cycle and the two different um, sets of phase relationships that the sun has with the inner planets, Mercury and Venus, versus with um, the outer planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and what the interpretive values are, you've got just pages and pages, and you also have worksheets in the book of how to interpret this in your chart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so people can check that out. That book is um, Ancient Astrology and Theory and Practice, a Manual of Traditional Techniques. And volume one on assessing planetary condition is the one that has the solar phase cycle right. stuff. Okay, so let's go ahead and resume. Uh, I just wanted to read through some of the other authors really quickly. So one more traditional author in order to wrap up talking about the significations of the planets according to ancient authors, and that's when we get to the 17th century and the first major English textbook on astrology, which is William Lilly. And here's a picture just showing his different significations of the planets, and they're much more extensive because he breaks it up into different like categories, like what it what the sun signifies when it's well placed in the chart versus when it's poorly placed or afflicted, um, what it indicates medically or what it indicates in terms of the person's appearance and different things like that. Um, let me read through just a few of those really quickly. So here it is on the screen. And this is from Christian Astrology in 1647. So it says, the nature of the sun is masculine, diurnal, hot and dry, choleric, a fortune if well dignified. People signified kings, princes, emperors, dukes, marquises, earls, barons, lieutenants, deputy lieutenants of counties, magistrates, gentlemen in general, courtiers, desires of honor and preferment, justices of peace, majors, high sheriffs, high constables, great huntsmen, stewards of noblemen's houses, the principal magistrate of any city, town, castle, or country village, yea, though a petty constable where no better or greater officer is. Uh, goldsmiths, braziers, pewters, coppersmiths, minters of money. Um, manners when well dignified, when well dignified, very faithful, keeping their promises with all punctuality, a kind of itching desire to rule and sway where he comes, prudent and of incomparable judgment, of great majesty and stateliness, industrious to acquire honor and a large patrimony, yet as willingly departing therewith again. The solar man usually speaks with gravity, but not many words, and those with great confidence and command of his own affection. Full of thought, secret, trusty, speaks deliberately, and notwithstanding his great heart, yet he is affable, tractable, and very humane to all people, one loving sumptuousness and magnificence, and whatever is honorable, no sordid thoughts can enter his heart. Then Lily goes on and he says, however manners when the sun is badly placed in the, the natal chart. Then the solar man is arrogant and proud, disdaining all men, cracking of his pedigree. He is purblind in sight and judgment, restless, troublesome, domineering, a mere vapor, expensive, foolish, endued with no gravity in words or soberness in actions, a spendthrift, wasting his patrimony and hanging on other men's charity, yet thinks all men are bound to him because a gentleman born. So yeah, so that's quite expanded in terms of the sort of like psychological or, or character sort of descriptions of the sun as it's placed in a person's natal chart. Right. And what it's good that Lily brings out is when the sun is operating in a beneficial way as opposed to the sun not so. And what we might say a, a good sun is warm, radiant, creative, loyal, generous, 
life-giving, but a sun that is problematical. And we may see this through the sun sign or through its domicile or through the aspects it has. The sun can be overly prideful and rigid. It can be arrogant. It become domineering. It can be completely self-centered unless all the attention is on you. Like, then the world's not right. And we can see individuals who always want to be the center of attention or in the limelight, which becomes boring. Um, almost it's like consuming all the air in the room. And so these are, um, and then this is like too much sun, but not enough sun of having a deficiency, um, in that can make one not have very much energy or be apathetic about life or a low life force and vitality, a sort of weakness, um, a lack of confidence, um, a fear of putting oneself out there. So we have that range between the um, optimal sun and too much of a good thing and not enough of a good thing happening at the extremes. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Let's shift then now to the modern authors, where I've got two or three modern authors to see how it started being talked about in the 20th century, where there's some continuity and some differences. So the first excerpt is from Reinhold Eberton and his book, The Combination of Stellar Influences, that was written originally in German, I think in 1940. So Eberton says, the principle of the sun is spirit, mind, and the living being. Right, that's Valens. Right, right, it's very similar <laughs> right, to Valens. Right, from the very beginning, that has remained. So psychological correspondences, and then it gives a plus sign. So positive, the will to live, the urge to rule, the striving for an objective, organization, the ability to make a decision, Yeah, which is really interesting, the notion of like decisiveness. Right, and being um, a central organizing principle mm. that sometimes characterizes a leader. You go into a situation that's all over the place and chaotic, and you take charge. And one of the ways you take charge is by organizing. You do this and you do that and etc. And I'll coordinate all of the different pieces so it operates effectively as a whole. Yeah, that's the person that steps up and takes charge and says, you do this and you do this. And in the most positive thing, manifestation, then everything works out because somebody is like putting thought into the organization and, and is directing things around them. Exactly. Um, whereas in the most negative one, it's something that's somebody is trying to steal the spotlight and is not, um, is becoming domineering or something like that. Right. It's okay. knowing what you can delegate and what you can't. Mm. Right. All right. So he then says um, negative, the negative points are lack of vitality and willpower, lack of determination and organization, indecision or vacillation. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, biological correspondence, he says health, vitality, the heart, the circulation, the body, the cell. Sociological correspondence, man, father, authority, leading personality, official or civil servant. Right. So for the most part, um, Ebertine 
mirrors the ancient sources. Yeah, there's a lot of continuity here. Right. Um, then we skip forward. Uh, this excerpt is from Richard Tarnas and his book Cosmos and Psyche, which came out in like 2004 or 2005. He says, the sun, the central principle of vital creative energy, the will to exist, the impulse and capacity to be, to manifest, to be active, to be central, to radiate, to shine, to rise above, achieve, illuminate, and integrate, the individual will and personal identity, the seat of mind and spirit, the animus, the executive functions of the self or ego, the capacity for initiative and purposeful assertion, the drive for individual autonomy and independence, directed and focused consciousness and self-awareness, the centrifugal expression of the self, the trajectory of self-manifestation, ascent and descent, the ruler of the day sky and of the clearly visible, the single source of luminosity that overcomes the encompassing darkness, the monocentric, yang, the part that contains the whole in potentia, soul and all solar deities, the archetypal hero in its many forms. Mm -hmm. So that's Turnus, and Turnus is bringing in a bunch of different elements. Some of those are ancient and some of those are modern, um, like Jung's idea, I think, right, of anima and animus. Right, although we could say that um, it's the sun is was God is the divine masculine, which then on the psychological level becomes the animus. Mm, so it's okay. a derivative, direct derivative of that principle. Right, um, and then also no, notions of like ego and the concept of ego, which again has ancient, you know, precursors, but also talking about that in like a modern right, psychological right, sense as well. Right. Um, there is a. Ascent and descent, I realized because you had in um, Abu Mashar, the fortunes rise and the fortunes fall, a line right. like that. And it's just looking at the basic motion of the sun. The sun rises and then the sun falls. Mm -hmm. And so we have those ups and downs that it um, uh, symbolizes on the daily, daily level. Yeah. Um, and then the final excerpt I had was actually from your book, and we read it like last time with the episode with Israel because I it nicely integrates some of the ancient and modern notions in your 2009 book, Astrology and the Authentic Self. Um, and even though you're here and we've talked about it, I might as well read the excerpt still today. So it says, the sun signifies the radiant core. Actually, why don't you read it since you're, you're the author, if you feel like it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the sun signifies the radiant core of a person's essence the soul, the mind, and consciousness, the life force and vitality, the basic sense of selfhood, the purpose of the life, and the source of the will for accomplishing that purpose. Um, keep in, and I'm writing this to um, my students. Um, keep in mind that the sun describes both the basic nature of the individual and the life purpose as an expression of that nature. Thus, what we do in terms of living a meaningful life is simply who we are on an essential level. The ascendant ruler points to the capacity of the personality to accomplish a life goal that is motivated by the core drive. 
the sun by its sign and house positions, describes the nature of the underlying purpose striving toward expression. What is it that you're here to do? What is that vision? And that is an expression of who you are and what brings you to a sense of having a happy, fulfilled, successful life, of doing what you're built to be and doing it well. Right. Yeah. I like how you integrated some notions of like purpose and um, almost like uh, the, you, the last phrase was underlying purpose, striving towards expression. And there's almost this notion of like um, destiny or fate or, or moving towards something in the, I don't know if evolution is the right word because that gets overused in modern astrology, but this notion of What's the, there's like a term in, um, that I'm like teleology in ancient philosophy and the notion. Teleology, right. Yeah. Right. That everything is moving towards some sort of final purpose or sense of completion. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the root word of apotelismatics, which is, was the name of several astrology books from the Hellenistic period of things being brought to their, intended purpose as the final culmination of the of a process yeah and the word that the astrologers used for the title of their books even that ptolemy used was like apotelismatics which means like the study of outcomes or the study of whatever that means the end of things right you know there's this passage in aristotle that is alluding to, alluding to this where he says that an acorn is going to turn into an oak tree. And the teleology, the final purpose for which the acorn is intended is the oak tree. You know, it's not going to turn into a radish or a carrot. <laughs> and so that then becomes um, this symbol for a way to look at our chart of what is our chart constructed to be able to bring to a sense of complete fulfillment at the end of our life. And if we can see that, how can we cooperate with being able to do well that which we are wired or intended to be? Right. That makes um, a lot of sense to me. It's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. There was a thread recently on Twitter that was started by an astrologer named Adina at Adina Rising, where they said they're having a crisis about what the birth chart actually is and um, and what it all means. And then a friend of mine, Joe Gleason, chimed in saying that um, they wanted to separate that from the question of what is astrology, which is a huge thing. And they mentioned my definition of astrology, which is that it's, quote, the study of the correlation between celestial and earthly events, and noticed how that doesn't really it just describes the phenomenon, but it doesn't really describe what astrology is about or what it's doing. And she um, started heading in the direction of her thoughts lately were going towards animism and that being an underlying thing. Uh, but something I've been thinking about recently was astrology and its connection with time. And I was watching, rewatching this old video about the notion of whether the fourth dimension um, of reality is time. And if time is like a dimension in and of itself, and if there's some sense in which 
if time and all time is happening simultaneously, but for us, we can only experience it in these small slices of time from moment to moment where we're living in one moment and we have like a past that stretches out behind us and a future that stretches out in front of us, but we can't really see time in its totality. But there's something weird about astrology because it almost is like the ability to see time in its totality, right. at least as far as your life is concerned. Right. It's being able to see the acorn and the oak tree. <laughs> it's being right. able to see the intended completion of the inception. So it's like taking, if you were to look at the acorn and being able to see the entirety, right. entire li- life of that that's stretched out like a snake in front of the timeline of the acorn until it eventually grows into a tree and reaches its fullest potential. And going back to the sun, that our whole measure of time has developed so that the sun is the primary timekeeper, the ticker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The tri- And the thing that is Setting the stage for everything else in some sense, right. especially in again terms of- going back to being the central organizing principle, right? Which is interesting, not just because of um, it's not just the central principle in terms of the synodic cycles of the planets that we were talking about earlier and all of their phase relationships to the sun dictating their whether they're direct or retrograde and different things like that, but also the sun. Uh, especially for Western astrologers that use the tropical zodiac since the second century, the sun is also what dictates the zodiac as well. Yes. And the different signs of the zodiac because they're based on the um, solstices and the equinoxes, which are different periods in terms of the phase relationship between the sun and the earth and different periods of um, the length of the days and the length of daylight versus night. Um, and, and different um, parts of that cycle having a foundational principle that becomes the zodiac and those different qualities of the signs based on um, the relationship of the sun and the equinoxes and solstices. Exactly. Um, and, you know, on the simplest level, the Earth's orbital period around the sun sets the concept of our calendar and the days of the year and then how that's divided. Up and how that regulates our lives at this point, right? You know? Yeah. What, so what, some... what season is it? Is it a Monday or Friday? <laughs> Do you know, are we starting work? Are we finishing work? Are we have our weekend. It's like bringing it down into the hours of the day when we go to sleep, when we eat our lunch, and it's all generated from the solar motion, right? So everything comes from the sun, and <clears throat> even though we we have different interpretive principles uh, from the sun and what the sun's position is in the natal chart and what it describes or says about your personality or the animating force in your life or in your birth chart, and maybe even underlying your psyche in some sense or your soul or, or whatever you want to call that, there's also other underlying notions of your potentiality and um, the timing and sequence of your life and your your growth as like a a being or an organism uh, as long as you're here in your body during the course of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. And one point we didn't bring out so much, but it was mentioned by a number of the different authors, is that the sun represents your will and your right. willpower. 
and how with a strong and beneficent sun, sometimes the will drives the life force through all kinds of obstacles or impediments that a person with a weaker will might cave under or respond to and the will can just push through and push forward as it's striving for that expression. And so having will, having willpower, having that as part of one's life force is one of the keys to understanding energetically the nature of the sun. Yeah, and that's really that's so important and that's touches on so many different areas not just um, psychologically and in terms of actions and the way that we act and actualize our will or our willpower, but also even other areas. Like when I did a episode a year ago with Austin on astrology and magic, and I hadn't thought about the concept of magic much, but I kept, once I started looking into it and researching like the Picadrix and different things, and I was trying to come up with a definition of it, I realized a really good definition was it was that it seemed like they were trying to actualize or Actualize their will in some way and make the will, um, whatever they willed, become manifest in some way uh, through magical or occult means. But that you're doing something similar with electional astrology when you're trying to like actualize your own will or what you want to to happen by choosing different moments in time to initiate the action. Right, choosing a moment that will eventuate in a desired result. Right. Yeah, so I, I like that. The notions of like potentiality and uh, teleology and um, different things like that is being tied into the sun and the notion of the the sun in the chart. Mm-hmm. All right, so there's a few other things that go along with that that we didn't get into that we don't have to. But there's also solar techniques in astrology, like oh, yeah. you know s- secondary progressions, and every day uh, symbolizes a year in the person's life every day after the day the person was born. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that in terms of like the potentiality that's inherent in the transits that you're having in the first month or two of your life manifesting over the course of the rest of your life. There's also, um, solar arc directions, which is kind of actually similar to secondary progressions where you're directing the sun, uh, about a degree per, per year. Until it meets different aspects with different planets in the natal chart. Um, there's solar houses, which is basically like sun sign astrology and doing whole sign houses from the sun's position, which is basically what sun sign horoscopes are, um, more or less, right? Yes. And the greater focus of sun sign astrology in um, 20th century astrology. Right. Many people. Many astrologers who don't have a birth time will use solar houses and interpret them as if they reflect the birth time. And I guess this is what sun sign astrology in its better form is based off of. So when astrologers say, if you have like Virgo or Virgo rising, then right. these these are the indications for you for this period of time. But I would like to say one thing about um, uh, progressions being based on the um, motion of the sun in the days after the birth that Rudyard spoke about that always impressed me as being um, very profound. And he said, why should it be that the 
first 90 days after birth, where in secondary progressions, each day corresponds to a year of a life. Why should the positions of the planets on those days be able to describe the entirety of the life using secondary progressions? And he said that it um, takes um, the Earth a year to orbit around the sun. And the first nine months of our life are spent in the womb where we're gestating. And um, biologists have shown that in the stages of our gestation from the first cell to when we're born, we capitulate all of the stages of evolution since the division of the first cell. So we recapitulate like all of time in that. So one could speculate that in the first three months after our birth, it completes that solar revolution, that the events that happen on those days would fast forward us into the remainder of our life. And then to me, it was fascinating that what happens to us in the first 90 days after birth each one of those days is a mini encapsulation of that corresponding year of our life. So we symbolically live through the entirety of our lives in the first three months. And that's the frame through which secondary progressions is operating. I love that. So it's like a mirror, uh, it's a mirror image of the, um, of the, uh, gestation period, basically. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I like that. And then one other point also to mention to wrap this up is the birthday that we celebrate the birthday when the sun comes back to its position every year after our birth. And we also have the other technique of the solar return chart, right. where you cast a chart for the return of the sun on your birthday each year. And that chart is supposed to act like a mini birth chart for the following year itself. Yeah. Yeah. And right. So, you know. And say, like, maybe if you're a renter, that uh, every year on the same day you renew your lease. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right. right. So that can be like sort of what the solar return moment is, is like, you know, the renew. And, you know, if you need to change any things in your lease at that point, you do. <laughs> right. But it's making that um, sort of agreement or commitment or initiation of the next period of the year. Yeah, and ha and what kind of terms your landlord's going to give you, <laughs> yes. and if like your you know pipes are going to burst in your right. bathroom that that yeah. year or what have you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, all right, thank you so much for for joining me for this. Yeah, today. it's this always is a pleasure, Chris, to share these moments with you, both like on screen and off screen as well. Yeah, well, we talk a lot, even just normally about stuff, but then it's nice to have it recorded for something like this and to. Just riff riff with you on like different stuff, like two astrologers do in private conversation. So, um, I can't recommend enough if people want to learn more about the sun and especially the solar phase cycle stuff to check out your book, uh, Ancient Astrology and Theory and Practice, Volume One, which is out and available now, and you can people can order from pretty much anywhere. Um, volume Two, like I said, uh, I think is is going to go on sale. On the Rubedo Press website, starting next month, around yeah, yes, well, a few weeks actually. On the 
Jupiter ingress into Pisces, um, Aaron Sheep will make the announcement that it's ready to go. It's publication will be forthcoming, but pre-ordering can happen soon. Brilliant. Um, well, here's the Rubedo Press website where it has the first book and reviews, and I think you can read a preview of it and everything else. And then if you go to the bottom of their website, there's a little thing for the mailing list, and that's probably the best way to get the notification about when the next book comes out. Yes, that'll uh, come directly from them with all of the clicks for pre-ordering. Um, and then I'll also send out an announcement on my mailing list that you can access through my website, DimitriGeorge.com, um, for that as well and other things that I'm doing. Cool. So there's a for those watching the video version, your website at Demetra-George.com. And I know you also have like um, recordings of workshops on using solar return charts and perfections and other things like that, right? Right, a whole gamut of both traditional and modern astrology. And you know, the other part of my life work has been with the asteroids and the mythic archetypes. Um, and there's a lot of material on that as well. But both interests, the ancient astrology and the mythology, go back to my interest in um, antiquity as a historian. Brilliant. And people can check out the episode we did a year ago on asteroids. And oh, you you actually have a workshop on using the ephemeris, so that probably covers some of that stuff. Yeah, I think about I was earlier. yeah using the ephemeris and how to time look at your transits using the ephemeris and interpret them. Cool. And there's the workshop on annual perfections and solar returns, and other workshops on asteroids and other stuff. Um, awesome. So people can find that at Demetra-George.com. Do you have anything else we should mention coming up this year? Um, you're speaking at Norwalk next month, speaking right? Speaking at Norwalk. I'm speaking at ESAR. I'm speaking for the Astrological Association in Great Britain. I'm doing a weekend for Astrology Toronto in June, a three-day weekend. And then I have um, several courses, a four-week courses that will be offered through Astrology University in the summer and in the fall. Awesome. So, so there's a lot of work happening in the next six months. Yes, you're going to be busy, uh, plus with a book coming out and right. everything else. Good. All right. Well, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot for, for joining me today. I appreciate it. Oh, yes, it. and the Canadian astrologers are having a conference. Let me not forget them. Okay. <laughs> Dear friends, I'm giving the keynote for that on integrating um, modern and uh, traditional astrology. Awesome. Um, well, people should sign up for your newsletter for more about that whenever you have stuff going on. Um, thanks for joining me today. And thanks, everybody, for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021, 
Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astro Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.